Jesus, thank you so much for this church, and thank you for the ways in which you continue to bless it and use it for your good in this world. Um, we are so deeply grateful for this community and for the ways in which you've brought us all together. Sometimes it feels miraculous, and I'm just grateful. So thank you for this time together as we turn our hearts towards the study of your word and the worship um, that we give to you through that study. Um, Jesus, we pray that we'd be drawn closer to you as we're drawn closer to one another. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, our text today comes from John chapter 5, and it is the story of the man who is seeking healing. Let's read it together. This, uh, the battery is low, so it keeps jumping. Um, After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there's a pool called in Hebrew, Bethesda or Beth Chesed, we'll talk about it in a minute, which has five porticos. In these lay many ill, blind, lame, and paralyzed people. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. I just want to stop right here and say, if you've noticed that the text has jumped from verse 3 to verse 5, good for you. There's a reason for that, and we'll talk about it later. Okay. When Jesus saw the man lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The ill man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up, and while I'm making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, Stand up, take your mat, and walk. And at once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. That's the end of our reading. This is a crazy story that happens at a place Um, It didn't, this is not an ancient photo. This is like a reenactment from a film, just in case you were wondering. Um, But it did look maybe something like this. So where are they? They're in Jerusalem, and they are at the northern portion of the Jerusalem hill um, towards the temple, just north of the Temple Mount in a place called Bethesda. So I don't know if you can tell right here. we have the Antonia Fortress, which is where the Romans decided, well, geez, these Judeans are real difficult. So let's make sure we have a very strong military presence that looks over into their religious doings all the time. So they built this big Antonia Fortress to look over and make sure that things were being staying kosher, as it were, in the Temple Mount. Isn't that a funny joke? Okay. Um, and so Romans aren't concerned with kosher. All right. <laughs> so they're looking in to make sure that everything's okay. And in that northern portion there, there is a pool of Israel. There's the eastern wall. And there's a place called Bethesda. Now, interestingly, the, another really good reason, just for those who want to be geeky, to have that fortress there isn't just to like peek in and make sure that these Judeans are being good, but it is also because that portion of Jerusalem is the most difficult to defend. It's the most, like if a, if a conqueror wants to come, they're going to come from the north because there's not a natural defense there. Whereas it's every other side of Jerusalem has some really pretty difficult hills to get up to, but from the north, it's difficult. Um, until the recent discovery of this pool with the five roofed colonnades near the Sheep Gate, many did not consider the gospel of John reliable. They were like, ah, John talks about stuff that we can't find, but now we found it all. So both pools mentioned in the Gospel of John have been identified, the Pool of Bethesda and the Pool of Siloam, which is another interesting healing story that comes later in John 9. And the Pool of Bethesda has five colonnades, four colonnades separated by the middle by another one, forming the five colonnades just as the Gospel describes. So it turns out that it is accurate. Now, so this is what it used to look like prior to excavation. And you can see where people are like, ah, John's just making stuff up because we haven't found colonnades. But now we've found them. 
And this is the entrance into one of the pools as you look deep down in. Um, and here's an entrance to another. When you look at these photos, by the way, there's multiple layers of archaeology that you're and, and periods of time that you're peering at. You're kind of going through a time machine that's about 3,000 years old, where you can go all the way back to the first temple period, um, the time of the, our Hebrew Bible, and then you can go to second temple period, uh, before the time of Jesus, and then just after the time of Jesus, and then upwards to the Byzantine period and the Crusader period. So what was this pool? What was happening there? In the Hebrew scriptures or Old Testament, it's referred to as the upper pool in that first temple period. And it was a reservoir that collected rainwaters that would be then redirected and flow into the valley for the temple mount, right? We need water there. There's not a natural spring or water source source as there is in the southern portion of Jerusalem. And so we need to collect rainwater, and they would redirect those. Anyone who's been in the Middle East for two seconds knows that rain is the most precious commodity, and you do everything you can to gather as much of it as you can and to hold on to it for as long as you can. In the 3rd century BC, a second pool was constructed in order to increase that water capacity for the temple. And it was connected but not divided, so that's why it's two pools. So it's sort of an addition. Have you guys ever added on to your home? So it's like an add-on pool. We have a pool. We're going to add on a second pool. And it was known then as the sheep pool or Beth Hezda or Chesed. The word Chesed in Hebrew is like covenantal faithfulness, loving kindness. It's not quite mercy, grace. It's not quite one word that encapsulates it. It's pretty big. So it's the house of mercy, grace, covenantal faithfulness. Okay? House is the bait part, or is also known as the sheep pool. The sheep pool, because it was right near the sheep gate, where scholars suggest that then sacrifices who were being prepared for the temple sacrifice, these sheep would be taken out and maybe also cleansed in this pool and then brought through the sheep gate, getting ready to enter on in for sacrificial systems. So that's where they are. And that's a bit of how we at least know in part the pool might be functioning. But there's more. Are you excited? Okay, so it could also possibly be that this was a ritual immersion pool, or it's called a mikvah, or in plural, mikvahot. And this is a place where, as pilgrims would come to Jerusalem, they would immerse themselves in ritual waters or cleansing waters in anticipation of their worship at the temple. Um, if they had any issue of uncleanliness, like a, an emission of some sort or a skin issue of some sort or whatever, and they'd been healed, they could go down and do mikvah. They would go and get ritually cleansed. And this is where uh, John the Baptist doesn't invent baptism, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago. It's not something he comes up with and he's like, hey, you know, it'd be really cool. Let's get all these people to come out to the desert and just dunk in the water for a little bit. Um, this is actually a practice a practice that was done for repentance, a practice that was done for conversion, and a practice that was done for religious observance. In the area of Jerusalem, we have found hundreds of ritual immersion pools of mikvahot, and those hundreds of pools are almost, most of them are sort of scattered in the southern portion of the Temple Mount entrance, where the pilgrims mostly came up through the pilgrim entrance from the south heading in, but this is the Pool of Bethesda is one to the north. Maybe some people used it for ritual immersion. But 
According to rabbinic literature, there are various qualities of mikvaot, sort of like a five-star system. They, you yelp these mikvaot, okay? So you might say, this one is excellent and super wonderful, Jordan River, beautiful, fast-rushing water, nice and clean, good for drinking, very nice. How do you think the pool of Bethesda, where maybe sheep are also in it, and then people who've been sick for 38 years might be hanging around, how do you think that one rates? Low, low on, that's the one star, do not recommend, okay? So these various qualities of mikvah oat, um, depending upon the type of mikvah that it was, actually changed how the waters worked, right? So this is according to rabbinics. Um, there are six degrees of mikvah oat, each superior to the other. So a water of pools smaller than 40 seah, or such, if an unclean person drank of it and then a clean person drank of it, they too would become unclean. So our best guess is that these pools of Bethesda in the north portion of Jerusalem would probably not be the ones that the rich, posh people would be super excited to go and hang out at because the uncleanliness of anybody who is unclean would transfer in. It's not rushing, flowing water. Um, Superior is water of rain flows, which don't stop. And if an unclean person goes there and drinks of it, and then a clean person drinks of it, they're still clean. This was kind of, do you guys see how the discussion's kind of working? Okay, great. So the problem and interesting part, there's maybe one other bit. Maybe this is a sheep pool, maybe it's ritual immersion, but also what we know, because we are good historians, is that Jerusalem is Hellenized. It has been taken over by the Greco-Roman culture. And this happens before Rome ever shows up. This happens under Alex, the original OG, okay? So Alex the Great and Hellenizes not just the land of what we call Israel or the land between or the Levant. Hellenizes all of it. And when he dies, his generals fight over it, and they continue this Hellenization practice. As a result, then, the pools of Bethesda or this house, house of mercy in Hebrew may not be an entirely Jewish site or a Jewish site at all at this time, but rather a Greek Asclepion-affiliated facility, which would fit in with what we know from archaeology and from Josephus, that there were other Hellenized projects in Jerusalem. There was a Roman theater in Jerusalem and a Roman bathhouse. So who is Asclepion? Asclepius was the most important god of healing in the Greco-Roman world. Incredibly popular. Here's this nice beautiful statue of him with a staff and a snake on it. What we know about this is that in when they were excavating, by the way, the pools of Bethesda, they found votive offerings to Serapis and Asclepius, pagan healing gods were found in those excavations. And these are examples of things that have been found in Asclepius's all over the Greco-Roman world, where you would go and you say, hey, I've had this illness, I've had this disease, and I bring an item that looks like the thing I want healed. So half my, my toe is bothering me. So I'll make a statue of my toe, a little cast of my toe, and I'll bring it as an offering to the god Asclepius, along, I'm sure, with a fee of some sort. I don't think that it was um, standardized health care that was provided for it. So there was no socialized medicine. Um, so you would go and you would offer this to the priests. And so we found things in the Pool of Bethesda area that seemed to indicate that this also functioned as an Asclepion. Now, we know for sure there was one after the time of Jesus there. But we also see now that there was a foundation for this worship of this Greco-Roman God before the time of Jesus as well. 
So since the 5th century BCE, before Jesus, devotion to Asclepius was widespread throughout the lands, dominated by Roman Empire, and large branches, like major, huge, what we call neochorus, like the place where everybody wanted to go to worship the god, were actually specifically in Athens, Corinth, and Pergamon. I don't know if you've ever read the letter to, of Revelation at the end of your Bible, but there's a letter to Pergamum, and the angel says, I know where you live. It's where Satan has his throne. And they found worship to Asclepian there as well. There are more than 400 Asclepions, uh, related facilities throughout the Roman Empire, functioning as healing centers and dispensers of the God's grace and mercy towards those in need. Now, Asclepion was married in the Greco-Roman mythology, and he had daughters. And two of the daughters, there were more than one, were named Hygieia and Panacea. So we, you can hear the words hygiene and panacea still in that. And in fact, when we even think about all of this, um, these symbols still live with us today, don't they? These are from this Greco-Roman god, Asclepius. The medical symbols we use, you see on ambulances you go by. And a plague struck in Rome in 293 BC, and these books actually, supported by an oracle at Delphi, instructed the Romans to bring Asclepius from the city of Epidaurus to Rome. And as Asclepius was brought to Rome, according to legend, he came in the form of a serpent. So often Asclepius has also had serpents running through the, like, non-venomous snakes. I don't think they added additional challenges for the people trying to seek some healing, but they had serpents present as well in these hospitals, these ancient hospitals that were available. By the way, the Hippocratic Oath starts, like the ancient version of the Hippocratic Oath starts like, I swear by Apollo Healer, by Asclepius, by Hygieia, by Panacea, and all the gods and goddesses making them my witnesses that I will carry out according to my ability and judgment this oath and this indenture. I am not a physician, so I did not have to take this oath, but I don't know if their names are still at the top of it, but initially they were. So you can hear how prevalent this is still in our culture today and how prevalent it was in the culture of Jesus' day too. Now, for those of you good Bible scholars, you might also be thinking, this is not the first time I have seen a snake wrapped around a staff. Anyone? So for a good Bible scholar, a good Jew or Judean, they might look at this and say, ah, we've heard a story about how Moses, remember there were snakes that came through and people were getting very bitten and, and sick, but if they cast their eyes upon the staff with a snake on it, they were healed. But then what happened afterwards? Do you remember? They made it an idol and they started to worship it. And so it was destroyed. Jesus references this a bit in the book of John. We just talked about it in a few chapters ago. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So this symbol of a snake on a staff, of being healed by that, it's prevalent, it's culture, it's just in the soup that they're eating, it's in the pool they're swimming in, quite literally. The Dead Sea Scrolls, people who lived in the desert not far about maybe 12 miles from Jerusalem, about 15 miles, right? The people, the Qumran community there, they actually talked about this Hellenization of Jerusalem. In their commentary on the prophet Nahum, they said, where is the lion's den, the cave of the young lions, referring to Nahum chapter 2? said, this interpretation, I know where it is, it's in Jerusalem, which has become a dwelling of the wicked ones of the Gentiles. They're like mad at the fact that in Jerusalem, 
There are places where idols, Greco-Roman gods and goddesses are being worshipped. In Jesus' day, right next to the temple, y'all. Right there next to the temple. Later on, two centuries after the time of Jesus, second century Christian apologist Justin Martyr does mention Asclepius has a popular obsession amongst his contemporaries. And he says this, When the devil brings forward Asclepius as the raiser of the dead and healer of all diseases, may I not say that in this matter, likewise, he has imitated the prophecies about Christ? Like he's like, imposter! Asclepius is not the one that raises the dead or heals. It's Jesus who does so, but it's so popular that we see this imitation happening. So this might be exactly why we were missing a verse as we started to read John 5. And we went from verses 1, 2, and 3, and we skipped verse 4 and added verse 5. It depends on your Bible as to whether verse 4 is popped up in the top or dropped down in the bottom as a footnote. Because it's later manuscripts that then say this. Waiting for the stirring of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down from time to time into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well from whatever disease that person had. So whoever the manuscript author, copyist of the Gospel of John is, they feel the need to say, by the way, this is not Asclepius. They're like, this was the angel of the Lord that could heal somebody. Because you have to understand that people wouldn't do this unless some good happened there, right? So something was happening, whether they were, there seems to be maybe some opiates involved. Um, I'm sure they tried different medicinal aspects, right? Um, They tried to always have an Asclepion right near sacred pools of water, right? We talk about different ways of healing. So maybe this copyist is trying to help us out by going, oh, by the way, the Lord does this. But this isn't a thing. We don't have this anywhere in our biblical text where if you go and stand by some water, occasionally God will stir it and then you'll get magically healed. That's not a thing I can see any resonance of throughout our scriptures. We have stories where people get healed in the water, but it's because of the Lord that it happens, not because waters get stirred around. The stirring up of the water was likely happening when the priests of the Asclepius cult opened the connecting pipes between that higher and lower pool And you started to see that water go through. And that's what the man is referring to when he says, I've been here for 38 years, but whenever the water is stirred, I can't get in. He's been there for a long time. You see, there's two types of people that would hang out in a pool like this, right? Those who are seeking healing and those who've given up all hope. Because where else are you going to go? And at least the Asclepius God was very merciful and generous and would care for the sick. So those who are seeking healing are those who'd given up all hope. And in response to Jesus' question about whether or not he wishes to get well, we read an answer that was anything but hopeful. It says, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water stood up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Like, I've been here for 38 years. Nothing's ever going to change. There is no healing for me here. So it's entirely possible that the blind, lame, and paralyzed were not waiting for Israel's God to heal them, but rather for the merciful healing act of Asclepius. So let's remember our context so far in John 5. Remember that the first sign we had was that Jesus was in Cana, and he turned water into wine, right? Simply by saying, pour some water in there, and then some really good wine came out. Like he, didn't, he didn't do anything magic. He didn't stir any water. The second sign 
back in Cana again, as it both happened in Galilee, is he healed a royal official's son simply by saying, your son is healed. And the signs we talked about last week with Kevin all point to who Jesus is. And very interesting, in the Gospel of John, we have really different miracles. This pool of Bethesda only shows up here in John. The turning water into wine shows up only in John. Why? Maybe John is preparing his audience for what they're going to find when they get to this Greco-Roman world where the gospel goes. You see, in the Greco-Roman world, there are, and this was Kevin pointing this out to you, gods upon gods upon gods. And you remember that the Apostle Paul gets to Mars Hill in Athens, and you can read this in the book of Acts, and he's like, I see that you're very religious because they have so many gods. He's like, but let me tell you about the one true God. You see, we have a God in the Greco-Roman world, Dionysus, who turns water into wine. And we have a God, Demeter, who turns bread right there for you, the God of bread. And we have Apollo of light and Asclepius of healing and Serapis who who heals with mud in the eyes, which we'll see in the Pool of Siloam. Maybe each sign in the Gospel of John is serving as a theological challenge to John's audience. Jesus is more than a God who can simply make wine or bread or heal. Jesus is God, and he provides eternal life. And so what happens in the story is that Jesus does the unthinkable. He goes to a Greek temple complex where the god Asclepius was worshipped or at least honored. I mean, consider maybe that he even, like, that was the god's abode by many common people in Judah seeking healing. And Jesus goes to the home of the god and heals someone there who's been sick for years, someone no one could heal, including Asclepius. Like, he finds the worst case. He doesn't say, hey, did you kind of, like, let me just do some stretches and you'll feel better, right? He finds the worst case and he achieves a victory over the gods of classical paganism, which had been introduced to the very heart of Jerusalem, right next to, adjacent to the Temple Mount. Jesus declares his redeeming, healing kingship over Israel by physically healing one of the lost sheep of Israel, thus demonstrating full authority over sickness, and like the Israelite prophets of old, putting to shame the false claims of pagan worshipers and those among God's people who had joined their beliefs in the condoning silence of approval. Why is this worship of Asclepius allowed? Who's in charge? Rome. Rome's in charge. So Jesus, though, he doesn't just do the unthinkable, he declares the unthinkable. And we're going to go very quickly through this, and I hope you just go home and read it on your own. But just following this event, then, the rest of John 5, 19 through 30, is structured as a clear-cut chiasm, a repetition of similar ideas presented in reverse sequence. So let's look at it closely. So so very quickly, the son does only what the father does and cannot do without him. And the son judges like the father and cannot do without him. This is verse 19 and verse 30. So we're going to kind of bookend and find a center. The father and the son give life to the dead. All will rise from the dead. Father gave judgment to the son. Father made the son the source of life. And this is the center. This is the emphasis. Truly, truly, they will hear and believe. Truly, truly, they will hear and live. As we look at this literary technique that the author of John does, which is incredible, this brilliant literary creation, the author of John first states and then restates in reverse order the following three ideas. Jesus is utterly dependent and reliant on the Father who causes him to act only in accordance with his will. 
The Father and the Son in equal measure give life to the dead. Because of the arrival of the Son, the hour of resurrection for the wicked and the righteous draws near. The Father has fully commissioned the Son to rule and judge in his place. And the chiastic center shows the author's emphasis. This is what the author wants us to know. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. This is about hearing. Remember the commandment we said at the very beginning? What's the number one commandment? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. If we go back here again, look, they will hear, they will shema, they will hear and believe, they will hear and live. This is the point. Remember Kevin talked to you last week, the sign, the, the miracle, the sign is there and it's important, but it points to something. And this is what this whole thing points to. That words create worlds and Jesus, unlike any of these other pagan gods, can simply speak and it happens. Sickness, the symbol of human chaos, was called into order by the power of Jesus' word, which was spoken at the waters of chaos. There's all these symbols that pop out through a whole text. And so the royal son of Israel's God, Jesus, came into the pagan abode of Asclepion and healed a Judean man without any magical formulas or spells. Jesus did so simply by telling the man to get up and walk, hear and live, hear and be saved, get up and walk. In other words, Jesus healed the man the same way Israel's God had once created the world, simply by the power of the spoken world. I think oftentimes when we talk about even our modern medical situations or whatever, it's like, well, I, went to the, I had this illness and I went to the doctor and they gave me this medicine, I'm much better. And that's all true, hopefully. But do we also give Jesus the credit for giving the wisdom to the doctor and all the scientists who developed all, and the chemists. And we say, yes, God used this person to bring healing into my life. Or do we only take the healing for credit for the humanity? Because I think this is part of the push that's happening here at this pools of Bethesda. Who is the God of healing? Who is the source of life? And to whom does the sign point? If you've had a miracle, if you've had a healing, to whom does your sign point to? The waters, the pools, they don't heal. Jesus heals. And I think what John's trying to show us here is that Jesus is more than a God who can heal. He is the one and only God of life and life eternal. That is what this story is about. We can talk all day about how it's a guy who sat there for a really long time in a yucky pool being ostracized by his community trying to find healing and hope where there wasn't any, just giving up and just lying there and waiting for death. And how Jesus comes up and he's like, hey, get up, take up your mat and go. And then there's a conflict that follows and there's questions that follow and did Jesus cause him to break the Sabbath and everything else? That's all very interesting. But you know what John wants you to know? That Jesus is God. And that he is the author of life. And not just life now, but eternal life. That's the sign. It's all pointing to him. We can wrestle with it all we want, but the gospel of John doesn't really give us a way out. 
very clear on who Jesus is. As we turn our hearts towards the welcoming communion table that Jesus has set before us, my prayer for us all is that as we seek healing, emotional healing, physical healing in our life and in our world, that we would not turn towards the other solutions only in our world, but we would turn first to the author and the perfecter of our faith, the one who gives life and life abundantly into the full. This is going to be the gospel of John's theme all through. Jesus is life and life abundant and available for all of us. And that life is present here at the table. My hope for all of us is that we find healing of our souls and our bodies in the person of Christ. And that Jesus will continue to use communities like this and physicians, like the amazing physicians we have here in our community, to help with that process, but that we would give Jesus all the glory. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.